Over the last several years, I've become more aware that my desire to be loved and the way I go about trying to be loved has not been helping me. I learned some of this by using the tool of the Enneagram. Today in my conversation with Jesse Eubanks, we talk about the Enneagram and I share some of how my own core fears and motivations have impacted my relationship with my current church. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. A couple of years ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling, and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. They are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Jesse Eubanks' new book, How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram, released earlier this year, around the same time a high-profile evangelical leader made remarks referring to the Enneagram as demonic. That's pretty lousy timing. If you have a conviction against the Enneagram, feel free to skip today's podcast, but I want to share with you that I've listened And I've read from folks that have done some deep dives on this tool. And after dismissing unsubstantiated rumors, I feel comfortable with using this tool to help me understand myself and others better. So I'll leave some links in the show notes for those of you who are interested in doing a deep dive on this. Some of the strengths of the Enneagram tool is that it doesn't just describe what someone does or how they behave, but it goes into core fears and motivations behind those actions. I found it especially helpful in navigating how I show up in regard to my faith. For example, knowing that a key fear for me is being unloved and that when I'm unhealthy, I try to do all the things to earn that love has been transformational. Some of you have different fears that you're trying to calm. Imperfection, not being valued, feeling like you might be too much, not succeeding, or a lack of security, pain, betrayal, or conflict. A deeper understanding of our fears helps in all of our relationships. I'm so excited to dig more into this with author and podcaster, Jesse Eubanks. Here's our conversation. There has become like a embarrassment of riches of, of good resources out there about unhealthy leadership, especially in our faith communities. Um, Chuck DeGroat wrote the book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, he talked a lot about Enneagram. And he said, I had asked him about this and I wondered about your thoughts on it too, is that how do we know somebody isn't just co-opting, co-opting the words? Like there's mm-hmm. this full vulnerability, he calls it, where like mm-hmm. they say the right things, but they aren't really doing the inner work. So what would be some signs you would say of like 
Oh, what, bad? A, what a great question. Uh, uh, you know, I remember years ago, the guy that trained me in the Enneagram is a guy named uh, Rich Plass. He wrote a book called The Relational Soul. It's an incredible book. Um, and um, I remember years ago, Rich saying to me, one of the most dangerous things that can happen is when we commandeer the language without doing the work. Mm-hmm. And um, And I do think that one of the things that we have seen on repeat, not just in the church, we have seen it culture-wide, is what happens when we are taken in by charisma and talent over character. Mm -hmm. I think that there is um, a deep need for us as people to pay very close attention to someone's character. Mm -hmm. How do you feel when you're in their presence? You know, do you feel that they are really trying within their skill set to listen to you and pay attention to you and love you? Do you feel like every time the phone rings and it's them that they're just, they want something uh, that they're not really in it for you? Um, I think one of the things is this, is that I, as I get older, I am still very much taken when I meet somebody that has a profound amount of talent and can, they're incredible orators or great writers or brilliant, you know, strategists. I, I still can appreciate those gifts but I am really dialed into character. Is this person off the stage the same as they are on stage? Is this person, you know, when I am with them, do I hear them speak about other people in ways that are loving and kind? Do I see within them um, a, a desire to really try to walk in the life and the lifestyle of Jesus? Or does that all just kind of feel like you know, in the same way that like the business world sort of has their own sort of lingo and language, yeah. is this person really just doing the current sort of church language that's kind of in vogue? But when you're around them, you just get a sense like there's there's they're, they're not the same person that they are trying to call me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that we need to ask for perfection. I, you know, I really appreciate Tim Keller has, you know, done this book on forgiveness and um, that just came out. And I, I appreciate that. I think we live in an age where now we're so hurt that the standards that we demand people to live up to because of our own pain, mm-hmm. because we can't stand the idea that we could be betrayed again, our tolerance for other people's imperfections are just now so low. Mm-hmm. Um, so when somebody behaves a certain way, is that a pattern? Is it something you've seen them do yeah. over five years, 10 years, or is it just is it just, you know, this is a one-off or this is just a season? Um, so I think it it just takes time. Um, and uh, and and I think it's it's a lot of paying attention to what do you sense the character of this person is? I will take somebody who is not as strong of an orator who has incredible character mm. over the opposite. Yeah, I resonate so very deeply. I mean, I ask that, you know, partly because, you know, this is like, autobiographical, you know, for our family, we moved to middle Tennessee for my husband to take a job for Ramsey solutions. And we were taken in by the charisma and so excited and so happy to be chosen. But slowly we just realized, you know, things behind the curtain weren't the same as they were on the front of the curtain and everything imploded. Um, And making sense of the fact that like, Oh, they did Enneagram training. They did a big thing, you know, they did a big disc push early on. And, and then they started doing things with Enneagram and thinking, you know, people can say the right thing in the right environment and still 
not have done that introspection. Um, And man, that's hard. But I do like how you have said there is a difference between a pattern of behavior and and somebody that is just a little bit unhealthy and like misunderstandings or differences in opinion, like not every difference of opinion is abusive, right? Yeah, not right. every like conflict with somebody is abusive. We live in a world where we don't all agree with things. And so yeah. I think it is hard. It's a hard tension. I think probably for my listeners as well to like hold this idea that we know that there are people out there that are really unhealthy and we don't want to be hurt again, <laughs> but we also don't want that new faithful pastor to have to hold mm-hmm. the burden mm-hmm. of all of the the terrible things that the the previous guy did, right? Like mm-hmm. we also had a pastor that plagiarized every word of every sermon he ever preached, like every word, like even the personal stories, he used someone else's, like they were Mark Driscoll's life. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. didn't know. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I thought his favorite food was XYZ because these stories he told us, but no, they were someone else's, right? And all that is that is crazy. And so I want to just push into that a little bit more. Like, how do we how do we move? How do we live in this space where it's just really complicated? Yeah. Um, we don't want to be cynical all the time. Are there some tools that you have learned that help? people that have experienced that pain? Is it just something we need to do in in their own work, our own selves? Yeah. I, you know, here, here's the first thing that comes to mind. I am, um, um, I was listening to, uh, the podcast radio lab, uh, a couple of days ago and they did an episode called apologetica. And it was about basically how the death of apologies and, um, and they use, all these really helpful examples, you know, Prime Minister of Canada apologizing way too much for things that he's probably not responsible for in contrast with President of the United States never apologizing for every, you know, for anything at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they go into the basically now we've created a legal system that discourages people from actually taking Absolutely. ownership. Yeah. So if I say mm-hmm. I'm sorry, well, now I'm legally liable for that. Um and they kind of land relatively, you know, I, I won't give any of the, the main details away. I encourage folks to go listen to it. It's a great episode. But um, the the place that they land is there's something about when a person comes and apologizes and takes ownership for the pain that they've caused, and they, they're willing to suffer the consequences of their actions um, and be held accountable. I I think it is it is there's a cruelty in there's a, there's an equal cruelty in bad leadership as there is in somebody who's under leadership that will never allow that leader to ever make mistakes. Yeah. I think that both of those are postures that are um that do a lot of damage and I think that there's a lot of humility required on on both parts. Um yeah. and fundamentally, you know, in the garden of Eden, you know, the first sin was mistrust. I mean, the very first sin was I can't, I cannot trust God. I cannot trust other people. I'm going to do this on my own. And I think that all of us are on this journey back towards what is, what does trust look yeah. like? Um, so, uh, so I think that that's one thing is that, you know, when we are, you know, if you're in a place where you're thinking about how do I begin this journey back towards a trusting posture with a church community, I think the one you got to go and check your expectations. 
Mm. You know, are you going in and you're expecting that the people in that community are not going to make mistakes? They're not going to, you know, ever hurt you. They're not going to act like jerks sometimes, you know, is the pastor going to show up exactly the way you want? Like you, you know, um, uh, unrealistic expectations are are premeditated resentment. You mm. are already deciding before you even go in that you're going to get hurt and you're going to be resentful about it. So I think that that's one thing. The other part would be, um, um, the other part would be uh, this journey toward taking, um, you know, I don't know if ownership is exactly the word that I would look for, but like, there's got to be this sense in which, okay, so in my own story, yeah, I have to own how deep my pain is over what has happened within my own church community. Mm-hmm. I have to own the fact, and I've got to name it. I've got to name the wounds and let them come out into the open. And then I have to begin to do the work of how have those wounds begun to shape the way that I've done relationships. So in my story, there are people that love me. I know that they love me. I've withdrawn from them. Mm-hmm. They are collateral damage because my own ability to trust had been com- has been compromised in the last few years. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I think that there's a lot of work that we have to do personally. We cannot control the way that other people behave. We can only make our own choices. And there's a certain level of risk involved. And there's a certain level of we we have to invite the Lord in via relationships mm-hmm. to begin the work of of healing. And um, sometimes that looks like therapy. Sometimes it just looks like great friends. You know, sometimes it's, you know, having a good spouse. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, it's Bible study and it's prayer and it's meditation yeah. and it's road trips and it's good meals. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's just like it's yeah. not a thing you know right now we live in this age where we think like therapy will fix everything and like Mm -hmm. it doesn't it can't um but it can help us it can help us a ton um yeah and so uh, yeah part of me loves what you're saying part of me really hates it (laughs) because because i know you're right like mary demuth has said and maybe she was quoting somebody else is like when you are hurt in relationship you'll be healed in relationship you just cannot just you and your therapist fix it all. You're going to have to get out there and practice doing the healthy things and having healthy boundaries with people and falling and succeeding time and again. And that's hard. It's really hard. And it's really hard to hear and to take in that I can only work on me. And, and I don't hear you saying it's your fault. Somebody harmed you. I hear you saying, what is the only thing we can do, right? The only thing we really have control over is how do we heal and figure out a way to move forward in a way that is healthy for us. And so we don't become what we hate. We don't mm-hmm. become the thing that hurt us. Mm-hmm. Um, I am an Enneagram two, the most uh, stereotypical Enneagram two Christian woman who wants to like make every, you know, show up and do all the things, sign up for all the things. And learning about the Enneagram realized it was because I really wanted to be loved. I just want to be mm-hmm. so, I just want, I don't want you to just kind of like me. I want you to adore me and think I am really particularly special. Um, and realizing that that is a tendency for me has been something I keep in mind in my new church that I started, that we started going to a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a half, where I'm like, what's really hard for me is that we're not members and I didn't sign up for all the things. And I have to just trust that I have value in a, in a world that I do not know how to do this. 
this is a whole new thing. Like, can I just show up as Amy? Doesn't run all the things, doesn't sign up for everything and still be valuable. And also I'm not like trying to negotiate like some sort of like, look at me. Will you love Mm me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's been hard. It, It is hard, you know, especially like for twos, you know, the the like emotional network with inside you when you feel deeply loved and when you feel indispensable, like other people really need you that emotionally feels the same. And so it becomes, it it becomes work on all of our parts to figure out what are the moments in which I'm settling for the synthetic version of the real thing that I want. And if I don't own that, you know, I mean, let me just give it, I'll give you another example. Like, well, you know, we're not going to beat up on twos. Like let's beat up on eights. We'll beat up on eights just a little bit. Like, (laughs) but like, you know, you look at, you look at someone's behavior like Driscoll. Now Driscoll is beyond just eight stuff. So like, if you're listening to you're like, don't trash eights. That's not my point. I'm, I'm trying to say really unhealthy behavior of any type. Yeah. You know, you take the unhealthy eight stuff all the way into into the station, this need to be in control this need to not let other people tell you what to do, yeah. uh, this need to be able to defend yourself. Those are good needs, but when they get supercharged and you don't own the fact that they're supercharged, yeah. you have a lot of damage. I remember um, uh, in my conversation with somebody, it might've been Sky Jatani, it might've been somebody else, I don't recall, but um, this idea that um, you know, fame um, really works a lot like the the uh, super soldier serum in uh, in the Marvel movies. You know, yes. it just makes whatever is bigger. So all of us, when we do our dog and pony show to try to get our needs met, you know, um, whether that's I'm going to be as competent and as as informed as possible, whether that's going to be I'm going to be the easiest going peacemaker there is. You take any of that and you make it ultimate. Um, and it will grow into something that you never intended it to be. Yeah. Um, but I also want to say, like, we got to have some compassion for ourselves. We only know one way of being a me. Yeah. yeah. You know, if if I knew another way to be a me, I'd probably do a different way, a way yeah. that's probably healthier. Um, so uh, so the deal is this. A lot of that stuff, it worked for us when we were young. It does not work for us as we get older. And yeah. we're all we're all learning. OK, Jesus, how how can I really keep my preeminent desire? to love God and love other people as I love myself. Like, how do I keep that as the greatest desire and let everything else get in line after that? The problem is that the Enneagram shows us what happens when we reverse that and to use Keller's language, when good things become ultimate things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Working through that for me, helped me to see that I let the desire to be loved and needed put people in a position of having so much importance and authority and way up there that was so misplaced. And so while, you know, our plagiarizing pastor is not off the hook in any means, you know, it helped me realize that my life was never about trying to make the pastor love me. Now for a quick break. Now back to the show. That's not the point, right? That's not the point. And so in this new church that we're at, um, just recently, you know, I'm not a member, I said, and I told you I'm not a member. We're not really, I'm not, we're showing up on Sundays. Um, 
But recently my brother passed away unexpectedly. And, you know, even though I'm not all the things at the church, every, like every single staff member texted me and told me that they were praying for me and cared about me, wanted to hear about my brother. And I thought I was overwhelmed with like, they care about me. And I, not because I did anything at all. And it was like, I don't think I could have had that moment if I had still been in that frenzied pace of like sign up for all the things. And Mm -hmm. uh, because I had been thinking through this, like, do I matter if I am not producing things for the, the system, do I matter? And they answered that in a way that was just really powerful. And they didn't know I was asking that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have my arms crossed over my chest saying, I'm just daring you to care about me. I mean, I, I know our pastor knows I have a podcast. I can't imagine a pastor being like, oh, yeah, Amy Fritz coming to my church. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, but at the same so time, like, end Amy- up on our podcast, working through that has been a really interesting journey for me. Like, they love me and I didn't do anything. Yeah. But Amy, but then there's this other part, right? Where you have to get to a place where you believe it. Yeah. Like you have to. And I think that when all of us are like, when we're not doing any level of self-reflection, we're living on, you know, auto drive. Like um, the the truth is that the moments show up in which we are being invited to stop believing the trances that we're in, you know, wake up. And we don't because we're just so addicted to our way of doing things. And so like, Oh man, that like muscle memory, Jesse, now I'm like, they love me. I should become a member. I should sign up for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I should show them that I'm worthy of this. Yeah. Yeah. You might have to be like, Whoa, hold up. Mm -hmm. Slow down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's like, that's part of the great invitation, right? Is, um, um, I heard somebody talk about, so I'm, um, uh, I'm 43 and I heard somebody talk about this thing that happens in middle age where we get to middle age and, um, we begin to do the work of grieving a lot of our dreams that have not come to pass. Mm-hmm. All of us, yeah. you know, in our, in our youth in our twenties, our thirties, we have a vision for what we think life's going to be like. We think <laughs> yes. eventually eventually I'm going to change in this way. Eventually my spouse is going to change in this way. Eventually I'm going to have this career opportunity. Eventually we're going to have this economic freedom. Eventually, eventually, eventually. And then you get to your forties and there's a, there's a slow waking up where you realize some of that ain't going to happen. Yeah. And there's a grieving. I, I mean, a deep, a deep grieving that just sort of works like a low grade fever that just sits on us. And, and, it can happen with church communities for sure. I mean, I was positive. I am going to the grave with these people. Like these are my people. And um, and so there's just a grief that happens. And then there's this moment in that grief where we have a choice. I can either go back now that I have more power, more influence, more autonomy. In a lot of cases, we might have more money. We might have a better career, whatever. We can go back and get all the things that we thought we could not have before because now I've really refined my tricks or we can grieve. We can come to terms with the life that we do have because it's, it, it has a lot of beauty in it, even amongst the heartache. And we can begin to do that grief work so that in the back half of life, we can live different. 
And what I see over and over again that happens to a lot of people in middle age is that people that have been close choose different paths. And that's really devastating in marriages. It's devastating in friendships where one person goes, I can't keep living the way I did the first 40 years of life. And the other person goes, no, I'm going to go do it again. And that's, you know, we might call it a midlife crisis, but I don't think that quite conjures up exactly, yeah. you know, the right pictures, but, um, but yeah. And, and so when I think about, you know, even what you're describing him is you're like, I want this other path, you know, I don't want, I don't want to go do it all over again. Like I did it in the past. Like I want, I want to do this, the back half of life in a different sort of way. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, so resonate with you saying, this is not my dream. This is not my dream. I did not dream I'd have a podcast where I talk about hard things to do with faith. I was going to have all the trophies for being the trophy child of the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was not my dream. So I am still sort of reckoning with that. No, I don't want to go back to the unhealthy, but I can so see that. I could so see that tendency to be like, well, maybe mm-hmm. I could get the trophies and not love them as much. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I have, a, you know, but I don't know that I can have a healthy relationship with the trophies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not good for me. Yeah. And for some people, you know, and I think that's part of us coming to terms with who we are. Like some people could do that because they don't, they don't have an intoxicating effect on them. Yeah. But for, for some of us, you know, we do certain things and we just kind of go like, I don't know what to say, except like, it's like I get drunk on the stuff, you know, it just kind of does it for me in a way that's maybe not the most life-giving. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. How would you say the Enneagram, the Enneagram can help us with our relationship with uh, Christian celebrity in our life and what position it should have? Yeah, I think, um, I think again, we can kind of come back to, to motive. There's some people that are going to be, um, they, they look to Christian celebrity and we just live in a country where it's like, if something is popular, that means that it's successful and that means that it's sound. But what we see in the gospels is actually the opposite. Every time that Jesus sort right. of got a certain degree of fame, he would then go on to continue to teach truth, unchanging mm-hmm. truth, and the crowds would dissipate and move on to the next, you know, fad. And so, um, so I think that we don't need to there's some people that just go like oh that person's popular i'm not i'm going to disregard them altogether well their fame alone is not a reason uh to disregard (laughs) likewise their fame alone is not a reason to trust them um there are plenty of there are plenty of like very um uh popular christian books that when i open them and i read them i just go i i'm just not seeing it i don't understand really you know what the beauty is and what the gospel is in amidst this. Um, so all that to say is that when we approach fame, I think that um, if we don't, um, there's just two things. When we're looking upwards at other people who have fame, I don't think we can disregard them or celebrate them purely based on the fame. I think it's going to come back to character and it's going to back, come back to content. Likewise for ourselves, some of us want fame. Some of us don't care at all about fame. Um, for those of us that do feel the allure of fame, I think that, uh, we really have to do the work of, of getting into our motives. What's going on that, uh, that makes fame so appealing. Um, you know, I had a buddy of mine not long ago, like 
you know, busting my chops because uh, I made the comment like, yeah, I just don't want to, you know, post a bunch of stuff on social media. He goes, oh, yeah, you just hate crowds because, you know, with all of your music efforts through the years and your multiple podcasts and your book project and your, <laughs> you know, and uh, and he said it like in a very like loving way, but he was also right. He's just like, you know, don't don't sit here and kid yourself in front of me. If you're going to lie to yourself, go do it in private, you know, and uh, um, and so I think uh, I think that that changes also even for ourselves um the responsibility to understand our own desire for fame what's going on why do we feel that we need it um and can we be content if we never have it and in fact um if we really want to wield it well in, in case we do one day get it we need to do our work before we begin to pursue it yeah i think i have heard you say that you are in enneagram three is that right yeah. Okay. So yeah, it gets real confusing. Um, but you thought so for, you were a four, right? Yeah. So for like you a decade, have a strong four wing. Yeah. So for a decade, I identified as a type four, and then literally right as the book came out, I was like, oh, I think I'm a, I think I'm a three. <laughs> and then, um, um, you know, without airing like all my business on on your podcast, like, uh, my my life has just been very complicated for the last year, and yeah. Uh, so I think it's um I think it kind of just spun me out in some very in very bad timing as I'm promoting a book. Um yeah. so all that to say is that um I, I did a, a coaching session with a trusted Enneagram friend recently and she was like, No, I think you're you're still you're still four. You know, you're just in the season where Interesting. You're, you're having to do I all love the that, Jesse. Yeah. And so it says a lot about how stress impacts us. Like if you're yeah. in a really intense time, it, it and like you have to be a certain way to get a book done and to promote yeah. a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I think in this scenario, she said she sees it all the time that a lot of folks will get about a decade in to their work on on their enneagram type, and she said that it happened. So, um, so it was my, it was my friend Lisa Visher. So it's, it's her husband is Phil Visher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who I know she did, did Veggie Tales and the Holy Post. Stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lisa said, you know, it happened to her. It happened to Phil. It happened to friends of theirs. Like that about 10 years in, which is about where I am. Yeah. She said that a lot of times we've done so much work on our core type that we we just get disoriented and we really start locking into our wings because we get hungry for a different way of approaching life. Like, yeah, hey, I've done it. I've done the four thing. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. I'm ready to do something different. So, um, so I think a lot of that is, uh, is what was happening. I think that overlapped with, you know, I'm doing, you know, all of the things you got to do to promote a book. And, yeah. and I think that's just very disorienting. And then you throw in on top of that, like, um, you know, just some, some personal pain, uh, going on in, within my family and, you know, it just gets, it gets tricky. So, um, so unfortunately, you know, for all my listeners, you know, like on the podcast, I'm like, well, I said it all behind a microphone, which is not ideal, but, uh, um, you know, whatever. Kind of like, well, when you do a book too, like you change and grow too. Sometimes you're like, oh, I'm reading the book I yeah. wrote yeah. five years ago. I'm not the same person I was then. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. We're kind of all coming, going on a journey together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder though, with everything you've seen in the world with, uh, leaders crashing and burning publicly. You know, maybe you were like holding on to that three in a way saying, I need to be aware of the issues with wanting to succeed mm -hmm. and wanting to win, Yeah, you know, wanting yeah. to like make all the sales and be, you know, I don't know. That's me just surmising that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there is this truth. Like my number one prayer for the last three years um, is, is routinely is Lord, give me the character 
for for the station and the responsibilities and the relationships in life that I have. And I do f- spend a fair portion of time really fixated on trying to avoid that unhealthy side of the three. Yeah. Um, the reality is, is that I do. I host a couple of podcasts and I've got a book and I have to do a lot of media stuff. And um, there's a great allure within that. Um, and so, uh, I've got a lot of that animal inside of me. So I, yeah. you know, I want to own that, that reality. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, it was funny. Yeah. I've I got a lot of people in my life are like, I didn't buy the three thing for a second. You were four. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, I love know. it. Yeah. Are you afraid? I, part of me is afraid of success. You sure. Like this fear of like, I, I'm afraid of failure, but I'm also like, at this point, I'm sort of afraid of succeeding too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and I think too, like there, there's two sides to that. Like I'm, I, I can get scared of the, um, becoming my success that I would be confused about what I do is who I am. I think that can become a very confusing thing. Um, I also think, um, and I've learned this, you know, with releasing a book, like there's a, there's such a cruelty in social media these days, um, where we we just say things to each other that are just so mean spirited, um, and the more that you're in the spotlight, the more that people will say those things about you, and they do not care. So I've had people uh, insult me in all sorts of ways that I I don't know who these people are. Um, I'm not even convinced that they've even engaged my book, but for a variety of reasons, they see me as somebody that needs to be taken down a notch. Um, and so, uh, so there's, there's that side too, where I'm like, I don't know if I want the fame of, um, because of the cruelty that, that we direct at people right now for whatever reason, you know, we just, we just eat each other alive. Uh, and Christian Christians are, woo, Christians are the worst because God's on their side. So they can, they can say whatever they want. We justify a lot in the name of Jesus. Um, yeah. I'm rereading the book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb by Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin. It came out a long time ago. Did you ever read that book? It was no. absolutely amazing. They actually um, realized early on that there was some failures that they saw that in their own lives that, that changed their path, that, that saved them, they would say. Um, and they decided to spend a lot of time listening to like, the sages of the Christian life, like people that have done the work for a long, long time and had chosen the way of the lamb over the way of the dragon, highly recommend the book, but they had to rewrite it because one of the people they wrote about was Jean Vignet. And then, Oh yeah, sure. After they published their book and even had like a conference, you know, the news came out that this person had pretended to be someone that they were not, which is just really, really devastating. But, um, I, I do. I think it's sort of related to that. Like, okay, now I learned a little bit about myself. What if I, uh, what if I end up like getting on the path again, mm-hmm. that's that I was saved from and will I be better mm-hmm. this time? Um, as we wrap this up, Jesse, I want to know, like, what is the most important reason you wrote your book and who is it for? Yeah, I wrote the book that I wish um, that I had when I first learned about the Enneagram. A lot of the work around the Enneagram that's out there is really, really good. This is a this is a basic. It's a primer. So if um, if you're somebody that's like I'm just now kind of getting into it, you know, this is a great starting point. Um, but I wanted to write one that was really deeply seeped in the character of Jesus. Um, so a lot of Enneagram work is sort of 
here's the Enneagram as a model. And now yeah. let's kind of just put it sort of a few kind of Bible verses around it. And I'm not, and I don't want to knock that, that that's fine. I was looking for something though, that would really force me kind of into the arms of Christ. Like who is he? What does the gospel mean for my specific personality? How does, how does the father love me as his child specifically? I don't love my kids all exactly the same ways. I parent mm-hmm. them different. Yeah. How is he parenting and loving me? And so, um, so a lot of the Enneagram work too that's out there is very like um, it's kind of highbrow scholarly at times. Like you need to have a certain level of education and acumen. <laughs> yes. um, and a few years back, I was invited to go and teach a Enneagram workshop for this little rural church. It was a marriage retreat, and a lot of people in the room were on second and third marriages. There was a lot of trauma in the room, a lot of recovering addicts in the room, a lot of twelve-step kind of families in the room, mm-hmm. and. Um, and when I got to the end of it, this guy came up to me, you know, trucker, trucker hat, tobacco in the cheek. Uh, and he was a mechanic, uh, mid sixties. And he was like, you know, when you came in here, I just thought, man, this, this young guy's just going to waste my time. And he goes, um, this workshop changed my life. It's going to help my marriage so much. And, and so there was a sense in which, and I can talk like that because a lot of my family talks like that. Yes, yes. Um, so <laughs> it, it's, it's not bad when I do it. Um, so, uh, when, um, <laughs> So when I had that conversation with that guy, I realized I really want to write an Enneagram book that's accessible for a wide variety of people. And that's the exact feedback I've gotten. Somebody somebody called me the other day and said, um, my mom never reads. She has told me my whole life that if I get emotional, I need to leave the room. Mm. And she said, uh, your book was one that was simple enough she could understand it and enjoyed it. And she asked if I would read it with her and we were getting together to talk about it. Um, so it's, uh, I really wanted to write a book that is for all people. Um, yeah. So there's, so that's, that's the book. I, I hope it drives you into the arms of Christ. I wrote it at the end of the day because my conviction is that the purpose of life is relationships and that we need to do everything we can as people to build healthier relationships. And so Amy, I would even end on this, your earlier questions just about like, what do we do about, you know, our, our pain and our wounds. And what do we do about um, even taking ownership of our stuff? And I think so, you know, what do we do about Christian celebrity and the evangelical industrial complex, all those things at the end of the day, I think an inner circle of healthy friendships and healthy relationships that makes all the difference. If you look at all the devastation that so many people cause, they did not have that. And if Mm -hmm. they did, we could have avoided it. And any of us right now that we're in seasons of deep pain or hardship or confusion, do the best you can to build a tight community of friends around you. Invest in those people um, because your life will find meaning as your relationships are meaningful. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Jesse. I'm still thinking about what he said about how we can easily make the wrong people carry the weight of how we've been harmed. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.